name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. One Saturday morning, uh, my wife Kim and I went shopping in a flea market, outdoor flea market in Johannesburg, South Africa. We were enjoying a wonderful morning with our three-year-old son um, out in this beautiful blue sky, crisp morning. Um, while we're standing there going kiosk to kiosk, we overheard behind us an American accent. Well, when you've been in Africa for four years and you hear an accent, you turn. And so we got talking and behind us was an African-American woman and we recognized her. She was from 11 Alive News in Atlanta, Georgia, where we had lived. So we got talking and we were, it was so much fun. We were getting ready to go. We were buying gifts to take home to give to friends. And so she had just come from Atlanta. So we got talking. We were just having the wonderful time catching up and what, asking her what she was doing in Africa when all of a sudden we realized Trevor was gone. Our three-year-old son had vanished. I didn't even say goodbye to this woman. I ran to the gate of the flea market where cars were exiting and I began car by car looking for my son. Went through the parking lot. I hurried back into the flea market came face to face with my wife. She had still not found Trevor. We made a plan for her to go to security and get help. And I began looking throughout the whole flea market. 30 minutes. Felt like an eternity. And then I looked between two kiosks and out beyond the flea market on a huge pile of dirt (laughs) sat my three-year-old son, Trevor. When I took a step toward him and prayed a quiet prayer to say thank you to God for finding him. And I called his name. He stood up and turned around and he burst into tears. And I got to thinking about this. Trevor did not even know he was lost until his father called his name. I want you to know this morning, the unreached peoples, the unengaged peoples of the world, they don't even know they're lost. Like Trevor... They're happily playing in the dirt. They're just minding their own business. They don't even know they're lost. They're oblivious to their condition. They don't know they're lost until someone crosses the barriers, crosses the cultures, crosses the language barriers, and allows them to hear their father call their name. Romans 1.14 says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The Great Commission was given to us, the church, some 2,000 years ago. Now, I'm not going to give you all the history, but let me jump to 1792. In 1792, a man by the name of William Carey wrote what I'll call a treatise. I call it his inquiry into our obligation as the church. In it, he wrote, do not the goodness of the cause, the duties incumbent on us as creatures of God and Christians and the perishing state of our fellow men loudly call upon us to venture all and use every warrantable exertion for their benefit. 
Well, fast forward from 1792, we are still not finished with the Great Commission. So this morning, I want to give you a few snapshots of, of where we're going, number one, and then where we are now and how we're going to get there. So where are we going? One of the things that drives me is a vision of the future. I have this vision, this painting in my mind of what the future is going to look like. And that drives any organization, even the church. Revelation 7-9 tells us that one day there will be a great multitude which no one can count. From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. They will be standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's coming, whether we're a part of it or not. So get that picture in your mind. That is a snapshot of one day in the future, we will all be standing around the throne, and people from every language, people, tribe, and tongue will be there. In fact, our organization, the International Mission Board, realizes we don't get to, we don't get to craft our own vision statement for what we want to do. We take our vision statement from this passage, Revelation 7-9. Our vision is a, a, a multitude from every language, people, tribe, and nation knowing and worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this picture in our mind that we're all working together. Our churches are working together. Our missionaries are working together. And one day we're going to arrive at a throne and we're all going to be around it worshiping the Lamb. So we have this picture of the future. This is why, this is why we all exist. But here's the question, how are we going to get there? We have to have a plan to get there. Well, first, to further understand this world, what are the languages, the people groups? We have to know where we are today. So I'm going to give you a, another snapshot, not where we're going, but where we are today. If every language, people, tribe, and nation is going to be around the throne, where are we today? A people group, first of all, we call a people group, it's an ethnolinguistic group with a common self-identity. They all know by language, by culture, by worldview who they are. We estimate, our researchers estimate, there are 11,730 distinct people groups. So that covers the world, 11,730. Of those, 7,064 of those 11,000 plus are what we call unreached people groups. They're unreached if they are less than, for research purposes, less than 2% evangelical. We further identify another group called unreached and unengaged people groups. And of the 7,000 unreached, 3,056 are not even engaged. Basically what that means is as far as we know, no one across the Christian world is focusing a church planting strategy among those people. So we've got some work yet to do. We have a picture of the future. Every language, people, tribe, and nation around the throne. We know there's a lot, a lot of work yet to be done. But what we haven't discussed yet is the who and the how. How are we going to accomplish it? How are we supposed to get there? And so I want to focus our time this morning in one verse. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. That verse says, And they overcame him, the church overcame Satan, because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love 
their life even when faced with death. So in, in, the, in the spirit of the vision where we're going, I want you to know something. We will overcome. One day we will be at that destination. But this verse tells us a little bit about how we're going to get there. Number one, we're going to get there by the blood of the Lamb. Guys, this is not on our shoulders alone. He has paid the price. Now, this is a truth that we as Baptists believe and we adhere to. Um, we embrace it passionately. But for a moment, let's just reconvince ourselves. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22 has this passage. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. And we have sung a hymn for decades. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Number one, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Years ago, my wife and I traveled three hours by boat um, on Lake Kariba to experience the first ever baptism um, in a, 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 a Zambian village uh, among the Tonga people group. This is Lake Kariba separates Zambia from Zimbabwe. And we were out with a missionary and um, we were experiencing the first ever baptism. Well, as the new believers began to gather and enter the water, they were being baptized one by one, of course. First, the men. They entered the water first, one by one. They were baptized. Eventually, a group of women lined up and began entering the water. And after a few of the women were baptized, something happened that is forever etched in my mind. One woman, approximately, I'd say her late 20s or early 30s, entered the water. It was her turn. And as is the custom, she turned and looked back at the people. And the pastor asked her, Two questions, very cu customary in their baptism services. Have you repented? And is Je has Jesus saved you? That was the first question. To which she replied, yes. Second, will you proclaim to all gathered here that Jesus is Lord? It's another thing they ask new believers to do. And she tried to say Jesus is Lord, but all she could get out was J, J. And now, I, I had never seen anything like this in my Baptist churches back home. So I didn't know what, but I noticed the pastor immediately motioned to some men. He knew something was happening. He knew what was going on. She began to convulse and she began to, she came up out of the water, rose about two feet out of the water in front of all of us that were there. And she began back in the water to slither like a snake. She bolted past. She broke free from the men who were trying to, to, to hold her back. And she broke free, ran past us. And I'll never forget, my wife tucked in right behind me. She hid real, real hiding behind me real close. Um, this woman bolted past us, climbed a rock at another part of the little inlet, and jumped in the water. Very uncustomary for them. And these men went in and rescued her. It took four men to pull her out of the water. Well, they rescued her, brought her back on shore, and we gathered around to watch what was happening. 
There was four men holding her down, like I said. They held her to the ground, one on each leg, one on each arm, trying to hold her. She had incredible strength. And she began to spew venomous words at all of us. And the pastor said, let's pray. And we gathered around and we all began to pray. And I'll never forget this. I'm a relatively new missionary. I'm in my 30s. And the pastor pointed at me and said, Pastor, you pray now. And I will never forget what I prayed. I bowed my head. I was scared. And I began to pray quietly at first by the blood of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, in the power of Jesus. And I grew stronger and stronger by the blood of Jesus, by the power of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And slowly as I grew in intensity, her ordeal slowly ended after an hour of trying to hold her down. Why? Because we overcome, not in our own strength, but by the blood of the Lamb. There really, really is power in the blood of the lamb. You would be glad to know, months later, after further counsel, she was baptized. And um, she has now been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. My question to you, have you, if you haven't been, have you ever considered allowing the blood of the lamb to help you overcome and to cleanse you? So we overcome by the blood of the lamb, but I want you to, and and that's all on Jesus' shoulders. But I want you to look at number two. We also overcome by the word of our testimony. It's almost as if he said, I'm going to take care of this, but I'm going to give you the job of sharing what I've done for you. Because through that, through your sharing, you're going to overcome Satan. So this morning we heard a little testimony. We did some overcoming. Anytime anyone shares a testimony, you're overcoming. Because a testimony is simply telling your story of what Christ did in your life. A testimony is a bright spot in a dark world. A testimony is a picture of the gospel in any given person's life. A testimony delivers ancient truths into a contemporary life. One of our former field leaders, Tim Kearley, sent in a field report one day, and it started like this. Quote, it was about the closest one gets to heaven in this lifetime. He went on to share that he was sitting on a short stool under the chief's Mopani tree in the Manika tribal area of Mozambique. Tim reported that they were having what he called a testimony workshop. Several believers from the Bush Church were gathered to share their stories with the chief and his family. Patricio had led the chief's daughter to Christ near the, near the village well in a team visitation the day before. And now here they were in a follow-up visit and their team, they were all sharing their own stories. One widow stood up and said that members from Chicamba Baptist Church had visited her sometime before, but she rejected the good news at that time. But about a year later, she allowed Christ to take charge of her life. And he led her to give up her means of making money. She was the local brewery. She then began to trust Christ for her livelihood. And her testimony was that Jesus had sustained her and helped her through all these years of walking with him. We overcome 
by the word or by testimony. Another man stood up named Pedro. Pedro is a Sena fisherman. He stood up and said that Christ had made a huge difference in his life. For years he told the chief that I would beat my wife daily. His reason, because culturally he thought that was the only way to keep her as a good wife. He said now, with Christ in charge of his life, he actually prays and sings with his wife daily. And Pedro paused for a moment and kind of dropped his head and he shyly added, I now even help with the children sometimes. Well, after several more testimonies, Tim began to share what we call creation to Christ, telling the stories from creation leading all the way up to Christ. And afterwards, the chief stood and he confessed before all that were gathered there in the shade of the Mopani tree. He said, I'm just like the prodigal son that we just heard about. And he said, I need to repent and come to the Father and find forgiveness and true life. Tim ended his report by saying that truly heaven came down that day for him personally, but also for this village chief. Why? Because we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Another field leader named Dwayne um, from Southeast Asia shared this report. He said, Solalar was the only Christian in his Buddhist village. And one day, Dwayne and, and Solalar are standing there looking out over the village. And Solalar just turned to Dwayne, the field leader, and asked him, Who will share? the gospel with them. Duane replied simply, why not you? You're the only believer here. Why not you? Solar didn't know what else to do, so he began to simply tell his story, tell what God had done in his life. He shared his testimony, and the response was quick. Buddhist villagers were open to hearing what God had done in his life. So he just simply continued sharing his story. Anywhere anyone would listen, he would tell his story, his testimony. And he began to lead people to Christ. Well, sometime later, at a national church planners conference, Duane and Solalar reconnected. They pulled aside and Duane asked Solalar for an update. He said, Solalar, how many Buddhists have you led to Christ now? And Solalar replied, about 3,000 have come to Christ because of my testimony. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. He shed his blood. Jesus shed his blood, but we share our testimony. But that's not all. Yes, he shed his blood. Yes, we tell our story. But the third part of that verse, Revelation 12:11 is they did not love their own lives even to death. It all began with a 14-year-old girl named Mary in a North African village. She had come to Christ and she was often heard to say in her village, "You can even kill me, but I will never stop following Jesus." Her impact was immediate. At first it was only 3 men who came by the chief's house, Chief O, I'll call him, came by his house to turn in their AK-47s on their way to their baptism. Chief O is the leader of some five villages. This act of repentance by these three men had a huge impact on him, and he began to inquire why. 
Well, they told him about a new church that was being planted and they had just come to Christ. And so he went. He wanted to go and check this church out. He went, heard about Jesus, and he wanted to know, who is this Jesus that's ushering this new peace into my, my village? Well, he liked what he heard and he came to Christ. He followed Christ as did his wife. And he began to grow and learn. And he joined an evangelism and church planting team. And soon, there were 150 Muslim background believers who had come to Christ. And last count, 18 AK-47s had been turned in. But not all AK-47s had been turned in. A car raced into Chief O's village one day and came to his house. A man jumped out of the car, came to the, the door... He confronted the chief's wife and asked, are you of Muhammad or are you of Jesus? Well, bravely, she said, I am of Jesus. After shooting her in the stomach, they kidnapped the chief. His body was discovered five days later. He had been tortured before he was killed. But obviously, Chief O understood what Mary, the 14-year-old, had understood. Remember, she said, you can even kill me, but I will never stop following Jesus. Mary, Chief O, and his wife, and the 150 new Muslim background believers, I contend they did not love their own lives even when faced with death. One of our personnel told about a national partner named Ali. Ali had been training local leaders for about 10 months uh, when he became very ill. The doctors eventually sent him home to die. A group of local uh, religious leaders came to him and took him on a, on a mat to the mosque and tried to get him to recant his faith. As they began to try to get him to recant his faith, Ali raised his hand and declined and instead, he began to share his testimony. And then he shared the gospel with them. And one of the religious leaders came to Christ. I would, I would say it was a result of him sharing his testimony, but also a boldness that does not love his own life, even when faced with death. Ali, again, was sick. And three days later, he died, but not before he brought life to a local religious leader. Ali didn't love his own life, even in the face of death. And I have a question. As I look at this passage, how do we as the church miss this? How do we miss the power that comes from taking up our own cross, by, by sharing our own testimony? How do we miss this kind of life that sacrifices ourselves for the sake of others because the scriptures are clear if you read Hebrews 11 36 to 38 it says others experienced mockings and scourgings yes chains imprisonment they were stoned they were sawn in two they were tempted they were put to death by the sword they went about in sheepskin and goatskin being destitute they were afflicted ill-treated men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground and John 15:12 says this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you greater love has no man than this that one lay down his life 
for his friends. Just for a moment, back to William Carey. William Carey wrote, The flights, the hatred of men, the pretended friends, the gloomy prisons, torture, the society of the barbarians, the society of uncouth speech, miserable accommodations in wretched wildernesses, hunger, thirst, nakedness, weariness, painfulness, hard work, and but little worldly encouragement should rather be the objects of our expectation. I love what one missionary wife said to her husband and about her husband. She said, I would rather be the widow of a martyr than the wife of a coward. That struck me. Why? Because we are not to love our own lives even when faced with death. David Livingston asked a couple hundred years ago, can the love of Christ not carry the missionary where the slave trade carries the traitor? That is so convicting to me that people would be more compelled to go into the deepest parts of the world to get slaves than we would be to take the gospel. We overcome by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony, and because we do not love our own lives, even when faced with death. I I believe the application this morning for each and every one of us could go something like this. Bacon's Castle, I know that you pray, but I want to encourage and challenge you to take this lesson and filter your prayer through this. As you pray, do not love your own life, but pray selflessly. And as you give, I know you give, but let's apply these lessons to our giving. Do not love your own lives and give sacrificially. I know some of you go short term, but let's apply this lesson to our going. As you go, do not love your own lives. Go courageously, go boldly, entrust yourself into the Father's hands. And I know you send, but let's apply this simple lesson to our sending. As your church sends, do not love your own lives and send your own lavishly and send them well. I know even Augusta would tell you that she is not that special. I know you think she is. She's a normal person who has submitted her life to doing what God has called her to do. God uses extraordinary people like every single one of us. Let me summarize with a story that I heard. I mentioned in the, the earlier hour uh, about one of my mentors named Dr. Robertson McQuilkin. Um, he was a missionary in, uh, in Japan. He's since died, but he told a story that made international news a few years ago, a number of years ago. Um, there was a fishing village with four boys that lived on the northern island of Okito, Japan. These guys were all swimmers. Uh, they were sea-wise. They lived there growing up on the, in the Pacific. As they swam one morning, one of them let out a, sh- let out a shout. It's a shark! Instantly, all four of the brothers turned and headed to the shore. The three youngest scrambled up on the shore in time to turn and look and watch their older brothers race with death. They saw a black dorsal fin cutting through the water coming right at him. They saw the dorsal fin dip and they shouted to their brother and he understood. And he flailed back and as the shark went underneath him, he grabbed it 
and held on for dear life. Three little brothers standing on the shore. Their older brother is sitting holding on to a shark. What do you think they did? Better yet, what would we do? Well, one scooped up a rock and he ran in there and he began to beat the shark in the belly. The other two converged on and began beating the shark with their bare hands. In the confusion, the shark lunged to get away and instead of lunging out to sea, it lunged up on to the shore. Moments later, the boys are standing there watching the shark in the sand and their parents come running down the beach. The seven-year-old, little, the youngest, was the first one to speak. And he said to his parents, shaking like a leaf, I'm sure, he said, I was scared. I bet he was scared. But here's what he knew. Here's what his brothers knew. Their older brother was in the fight of his life. And they knew this. They loved their brother. To say it another way, they did not love their own lives even when faced with death. So I want to challenge all of us on this Mission Sunday. Let's accomplish the Great Commission. Let's do it by the blood of the Lamb. Let's do it by the word of our testimony. And let's do it selflessly like we do not love our own lives even faced with death. We know where we're going. Revelation 7, 9 tells us we're going to be gathered with a great multitude from every language, people, tribe, and nation. They're going to be standing around the throne. We're going to be worshiping together, but we're not there yet. And today, we're reminding ourselves what it's going to take to get there. Revelation 12, 11. We're going to do it because of the blood of the Lamb. We're going to do it with the word of our testimony. And we're going to do it because we don't love our own lives, even when faced with death. So first, I want to just bring this to a close by saying, maybe you don't even know a Savior worth living like this. And I just want to challenge you, come and embrace the blood of the Lamb. Let the blood of the Lamb cleanse you. Maybe you have a story, but you've been a little afraid. You just don't think your story is all that important. Can I just tell you, every testimony is a story worth telling. It is a story of what God did in your life. And when you open your mouth and share that story with another, could it be that God put you with someone who needed to hear your story? And maybe you've been a, a little afraid to entrust your life to God's use. Can I just say boldly trust Him and do not love your own life? One final illustration, born out of loss. Um, Jimmy, I know you and your family lost Shep. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I, I know exactly. I lost my wife just over 20 months ago. And I learned how painful loss is in this broken world. My world came crashing down on me. Um, you know, loss does that. Brokenness does that. Loss is loss, but in my case, a sudden loss. It, uh, it does a number on you. But I had hope. Christ is the resurrection and the life. I could mourn 
but I had hope. About five or so months into my morning, I drove up to Washington, D.C., where my son lives, and he went to work one morning, and he lives across from Arlington Cemetery, and I decided to go walk and, and jog by myself. So I'm walking and jogging in Arlington Cemetery when all of a sudden I looked around me and everywhere I could look was grave after grave after grave after grave, thousands of graves. And I'm still in the midst of mourning and I just doubled over and I began to weep. And it hit me, I mourn with, lo- I mourn with hope. I don't know about these families Maybe some of them knew the Lord and some of those mourned with hope. Some probably didn't. But I was overcome with the multiplied pain and brokenness of this world. Fast forward a little bit. I heard a statistic from our research department. I shared earlier that there are 11,730 people groups, 7,064 are what we consider unreached. There's still work to do. And 3,056 or so have no one trying to reach them. But the statistic I heard that day was different. It was that every single day, on average, 154,937 people die without Christ. And folks, every single one of those die without hope. And that just puts a fire under me. It puts an urgency in me. My hope in my loss is a gift in the pain that I've suffered. But can we look around us and see there are people dying without hope? Here, yes, but to the ends of the earth. And so in closing, I say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, That those who live, that's us, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for their sake. Let's pray. Father, without you, without your son's blood, we would all be hopeless. I thank you for the gift of salvation. I thank you for the gift of salvation that you've given to each and every single one of us that name the name of Christ. Yes, loss and brokenness are still a part of this world, but we can mourn with hope. And Father, today I think of those that can't mourn with hope. Some Some of them are oblivious. They don't even know they're lost until someone crosses culture and shares your name with them. Father, help us to accomplish this task by the blood of your Son, by the word of our own testimony. And Lord, help us as a church not to love our own lives, even when we are faced with death. I pray for this church. Father, use them. Help them to to play their part in this great commission task. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. 
Be blessed. Thank you.